I guess Nils's question really is, have you got buns of steel? And I got really excited and I grabbed the menu and the receptionist just snatched it off me and said, Nyet! I mean, I should correct that slightly. I wasn't in the hockey team. I went drinking with the hockey team. So can I just check, did this help you prepare with sleeping in bus shelters? And yeah, sleeping on roundabouts and yeah, things like yeah. that. <laughs> We're live. Okay, hang on, let me just get comfortable. One sec. Oh, there we go, right. <laughs> Welcome to episode five episode? of the Chino podcast. Episode five. It's amazing, Niels, isn't it? Five episodes. Did you ever think we'd do this many episodes? No. <laughs> Who would have thought? No, I think, well, do you know what? It's amazing how many people seem to be thinking this is a good idea. So we'll just keep yeah. going for a bit. Yeah, saying that, like, really, thanks for all the feedback that we received. Without the feedback, we wouldn't know where we need to go and what kind of people you wish to listen to. Um, that definitely helps us building this podcast. Yeah. I think I've never did the opener, right? No, no, because I did the first one, and then we've had all our special guests do all the other ones. Except uh, for this week, when I forgot to get our special guest to actually do an opening for us. What have you done this week? This week, I was able to take a trip down to Bristol to interview Dr. Ian Walker, who's just got the world record for riding the north to south of Europe. Yeah, that's a big one. Like, I was really gutted that I couldn't come down with you. I had so many questions. Well, I, I shot some over to you, so... You'll hopefully hear that I did ask him many of the questions that you prompted for me. Yeah. Uh, I obviously asked really highbrow questions about psychology and endurance and I think you had a question in there about his bum. Because I read somewhere about the transcontinental race that most people abandon the race because they have a sore bum. Hopefully we'll find out in the interview. We'll see if I was brave enough to actually ask that question. About his bum. <laughs> about his bum. What did you think to get out of this? Before I went down I was really interested because he's a doctorate in psychology and he does these long distance events and I thought well I'd love to know how he achieved the world record and he'd also uh, won another event previous year the North Cape. So because he's got this education and, and he's so knowledgeable on psychology, I was really interested is there stuff that the average rider could learn from his approach that we could take into everything that we do around our riding. Yeah, I think we, we really got some interesting things out of it. Isn't his research based on traffic behaviour and psychology in traffic? Yeah, that was really interesting. So he's got, on a professional side, he's helping the government work out how do you structure traffic and particularly for safety for cyclists. And there's stuff that we can all learn from that as well. Yeah, who's a really, really interesting man to, to sit down with. Fantastic. Yeah, well, listen to the interview and see what you think. And hopefully there's a little bit of something in it for all of us to listen to. Cool. Great. So let's see what he has to say. I'm here today with Dr. Ian Walker. Ian, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Ian Walker. I'm an ultra-distance cyclist and I recently broke the world record for crossing Europe. First of all, Ian, congratulations. Thank you. How long was it? So the, the full distance, I believe, was 6,300 kilometres? That's right. Yeah, just a whisker over that. The record between the northernmost and southernmost points of Europe, which you can do in any direction you want, and I did it in 16 days, 20 hours and 59 minutes. Absolutely fantastic achievement. We're going to get into much more detail about the event itself and what you went through, highs, lows, emotional roller coaster that I'm sure it was in a minute. But it'd be great to learn a little bit more about yourself. So you work uh, professionally in psychology? Yeah, I'm a psychologist at the University of Bath and I split my time between three kind of related areas. I do work on road user safety, especially vulnerable road users like pedestrians and cyclists, motorcyclists. I also do work on why people choose to travel the way they travel. So in other words, how do we get people out of cars? <laughs> and I also do work on more general environmental behaviours like energy in the home, water consumption and that kind of thing. Ah, oh, fascinating. When it comes to your cycling, one of the things, you know, taking it always back to the beginning, just what was it that got you into cycling? I mean, where did you learn to ride a bike? I don't remember where I learned to ride a bike. I do remember as a small child, maybe about seven, I do remember going too fast down a hill into a curb at the bottom of a T-junction and flying over the handlebars. Probably, I mean, one of the key things was when I was at university, partway through that course, I read a book about cycle touring, a Josie Dew book. 
and that made me think, oh yeah, exploring the world by bike does sound quite exciting. And I had this real clunky old Chinese mountain bike outside the house that I used for errands around the city and decided to go off and do a 40 mile ride on that and just loved it. Right. Yeah, even though the bike you know, really didn't help and I was fighting this thing the whole way and had to keep taking the chain off and putting it back on. I just had this amazing ride out into the Yorkshire countryside and just got hooked. And so quickly afterwards, I bought a slightly better bike. And just after I left university, I went and cycled across Europe. And, you know, quite slowly, I was doing maybe 100 kilometers a day or something like that. But that's where I really got started. Then I had quite a long period of doing absolutely nothing. You know, pretty much throughout my 30s, I did nothing um, of any sort, apart from sit around drinking too much and putting weight on. Then I got into running. So not cycling. I've read about this. I hear that you just one day decided you'd, you'd, you'd heard about 100-mile walks, wasn't it? Is that originally? That's right, yeah. So uh, I stumbled across this organisation called the Long Distance Walkers Association who have this big thing. Once a year, they get together and walk 100 miles. And I just thought, what would it be like to have done that? What would it be like to be able to say, I've walked 100 miles? And I just couldn't begin to imagine what that experience would be like. Uh, and so I decided to have a go. And it was incredibly hard. My, my feet just exploded. And I was shuffling for the last 20 miles because I had blisters on top of my blisters on top of my blisters. And but I did it. It was amazing. And then I just stopped completely again and just forgot all about it. So was it kind of when you did that, was that one of those kind of once in a lifetime, I'll just do this once, I'll never do it again? That's exactly that kind of what it was. It was exactly that. It was, yeah, tick. I, I've done that. I had it on my list. I've done it. I can forget about it. Something like six months later, a friend sent me this link to a video of an ultramarathon in some exotic part of the Canary Islands. And I watched this video and just went, that looks incredible. Yeah, let's do this. You're right. Um, so how far was this run? That was, it was 73 kilometres up a volcano. So you start on the beach. It's called Transvolcania. You start on the beach in the dark. You run up this volcano around the top and back down the other side. And so there's a lot of climbing involved. Um, and it was just amazing. It was just incredible. I got completely hooked on uh, the running. And I spent several years doing more and more ultramarathon running off the back of that. And I was doing fairly well. You know, I wasn't generally winning races, but I did okay. I'd generally be in the, you know, the top 10% of the field. So let, let's just for mm. clarity for people who are listening, when you say I was doing fairly well, you're in the top 10% of probably some of the, the biggest endurance events. I think you did, was it the Mont Blanc um, yeah, the UTMB, the UTMB? Ultra Tour de Mont Blanc. Yeah, I mean, I was just outside the top 10 on that, but uh, top 10% on that. Yeah, yeah, you're um, right. Pretty average, pretty yeah. average. Well, but the thing is, it's who you compare yourself with, though. So by massive coincidence at that time, by massive coincidence, I was living in a village at that time, and my neighbour was a guy called Damien Hall, who's like a really big ultra runner. And we both did UTMB the same year. When I looked at the data after, he was consistently 25% faster than me the whole way around. You know, he's like an amazing runner. The next year he came fifth in UTMB, which is just like the world champion of mountain running. So I was nowhere near the league of those really top guys, uh, which is one of the things that, you know, I was loving it, but I was never going to win. Let me get this straight. Do you think you'd have been more satisfied if you'd lived next to perhaps myself or like a more normal person in your village? Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean... I think who you compare yourself to does make a big difference to how you see yourself and how you see what you accomplish. So there you are, you're doing ultramarathons. I have to say, I love the fact that, yeah, I think I'll do a, a run. Shall I do a 5K, a local you know, park run, a 10K? No, I'll go for 75K up a volcano. Well, do you know, I think there's a really interesting lesson there, though, in what your expectations are. It was the beginning of October when I decided I was going to do the Transvolcania race, which was next May. So I had about seven or eight months. And I went, right, how am I going to get from nothing to mountainous ultramarathon in seven months? And I said, well, how about I pretend there's a marathon at Christmas and I'll build for that. Uh, so go from nothing to a marathon in three months. Now, normally, nothing to a marathon in three months would be impossible. But when that marathon is just a step on the way to something bigger, it actually became trivial. I found a marathon in Portsmouth that goes just before Christmas and entered it. 
And I got there, I got fit enough and I ran around it. And the marathon didn't seem daunting because I knew I had something bigger coming. Well, Whereas if the marathon had been the end goal, it would have seemed a lot more daunting. I can imagine. That's, a, that's an incredible mindset. And so there you are, you're doing elite endurance uh, running. What was it that suddenly got you back into cycling? I heard about a race called the Transcontinental. I stumbled across a Strava article about the Transcontinental race. It looked really hard, but it also looked amazing. You know, the landscapes and the the epic scale of this ride, just riding for a week and a half or two weeks, just pushing yourself continually towards a goal. And there was something about the absolute size and scale of that event just completely grabbed me. And I just overnight hung up my running shoes Bought a bike, started cycling. <laughs> you literally, literally put the shoes away. Yeah, get the cycling shoes out. I've got a bike. I am now a cyclist. Yeah, I just stopped running that day. That is amazing, mm. amazing. But I guess it comes back to your original passion around the bike packing, doesn't it? I guess, as you said, you know, at university, you got inspired by that bike packing. It's a bit more of a similar. You know, it's the aim of the outdoors, that the roaming, the big landscapes, large distances. Yeah, but then what's really interesting is how that's developed as I've gone on. So. One of the things that people often say when they look at these big races is they'll say, isn't this a great way to ruin a nice holiday by making it a race? And I can absolutely see why people think that. You know, a lot of the time you've got your head down, you're focused, you're staring at a computer in front of your handlebars. I've gone across whole countries and not seen a thing. And I can completely understand why people think that's stupid. But at the same time, I think there's something magical that comes out from making it a race. And there's a couple of aspects of that. On the one hand, the fact it's a race justifies all the weird behavior. If I wasn't racing and I was stuffing my face with Swiss rolls out of supermarkets and sleeping in bus shelters, that would just be weird. Who'd do that? But the fact it's a race means that that now makes sense. The fact that we've all agreed we're gonna try and get from here to there as quickly as possible excuses all of the crazy behavior. So racing's good from that respect, but also what it does is it changes your mindset. It changes the way that you're viewing yourself. So after a few days of really pushing hard, part of your mind just becomes freed up. So there's always a bit of your mind that's worrying about where will I next sleep? Where will I next find food? Uh, how will I solve this particular problem? Is my navigation okay? There's part of your mind's always fretting about that. But after a few days, the main bit of your mind just sort of goes, everything's fine. I'll find food when I find it. I know I've got a route that goes past shops. Food will appear soon. I know I can always just pull off the road and have a sleep. Shelter is not a problem. And your mind just frees itself up because of this. But you couldn't do that without the constant driving need to move forward. You'd be stopping and looking around and doing that. And you'd never experience this sort of zen-like state of freedom that comes from just pushing fast and allowing everything to just work out. That's fascinating that, as you say, the, the, the place that your mind goes, and it's almost like a meditation, mm. I guess, when you get into these parts. You, so you've come from somebody who didn't do a huge amount of sport, from what I, I, I pick up. Yeah, none at all through my 30s, yeah. yeah. Back into this passion, you, you, you run ultramarathons and you're moving to, to cycling. Mm. I guess moving on to this particular event, what, when did the north to south of Europe become a passion? So I'd done two long bike races at this point. I'd done the Transcontinental, which was great. A huge amount of things went wrong, but I had an amazing time and I learned a huge amount of stuff. Then the following year, I wanted to do something similar, but not necessarily the same race. I wanted a new experience. And I found a race called the North Cape 4000, which goes from Italy to the very top tip of Norway uh, on a fixed route, which is a different aspect of it. And I had a really great time and managed to come first in that particular event. And so off the back of that, there was a part of me thinking, well, you know, was that a bit of a fluke? Could I do that again? And I was looking around at other races I might enter. And during that process, I stumbled across the various world records for cycling Europe. There's basically two. So there's a record for going between the east and westmost points, currently held by someone called Lee Timmis. But that's the record that Sean Conway held for a while. And then there's the north-south record between the northernmost and southernmost point. I was all set to do the east-west record 
even though Lee Timmis had recently broken it and done a really good time, averaging 370 kilometres a day, I, I thought I might still have a go at it. And then suddenly I realised, why am I doing this? It's going to be far more sensible to do the north to south one, partly because it will be a whole lot less Russian highways, which was a factor I was quite <laughs> worried about. Uh, but also the record is more achievable. So the record for the north-south was held by Lee Fancourt, which was 21 days something. And that was a lot more achievable. And so I decided to have a go at that with all these things you're, you're doing is, is there something you're chasing are you trying to find your own limits are you looking for something when you're, you're picking out these big events finding my own limits is definitely a big part of why i like doing this what's great about ultra distance sports whether it's running or cycling it's a relatively safe place to test yourself to put yourself in difficulty and see how you manage and that's one of the things i really get out of it that it's almost like practice suffering when you go through this again and again and again and you've gone through difficult times over and over and had to solve a whole range of problems in tough situations you start to become a lot more confident and you start to realize that most things are within your grasp because you've practiced going through difficulty coming to the event itself we know it's 6,300 kilometers do you get support with it do you do you get people helping you out how, how does that all work well, the Guinness records have a handful of rules. Um, so the first, probably most interesting, is you have to go continually over land. So no ferries, which means you are going to go through Russia. Right. Uh, so that introduces quite a few logistic issues. Uh, and then the other major one is that they don't distinguish supported and unsupported rides. And I can see why, because how would you prove that you did it unsupported. So I completely understand their perspective there, but there's no distinction. I could have done this with a mobile home and a bed and a masseur and a sports nutritionist and a mechanic. And I could have had all that, but I didn't, partly because I don't have them. And also I just wanted to do the purer experience of just doing it by myself on my own. And I actually set myself a few little extra rules to go a bit purer on that sense. So for example, I set myself the rule that Everything I started off with, I'd finish with. There would have been a temptation to stop at a post office and send back my cold weather gear from the Arctic, but I didn't. I carried it to the finish because I thought it was somehow a bit purer to start and finish with the same kit. I mean, it was a bit stupid, but... But that, that, was, the... that was going to be one of my questions about the kit, because you literally go from wearing a fur coat at the start to needing your flip-flops at the finish. Yeah. My assumption had been that you would have drop-offs or change things, the rest of it, but you managed to keep all that kit with you the whole way. Yeah, I mean, the kit was pretty minimal, which helped, but I was a little bit scarred by my experience in the North Cape race last year. There was one night in particular up in the Arctic where it got so bitterly cold. I mean, just like nothing I'd experienced before. I was wearing every single item of clothing I had with me. I also had my sleeping bag wrapped around inside my jacket. At one point, I found a a bunch of magazines in a bus shelter and I stuffed them down my clothes and down my leggings and in my arms and even that wasn't enough and in the end I just had to hole up in my bivy bag and sleep it out. Because I had that experience I was really maybe slightly over prepared for the Arctic because I didn't want to go through that again. So I did have you know some warm clothes and my sleeping bag and all that sort of kit and like a reflective blanket and so on. It turned out I could have got away with a bit less kit. But yeah up at the top You've got all of that cold weather gear, sleeping bags, warm clothes. Down south, I hit the heat wave. So we had a really serious heat wave again this summer. And it was 40 odd degrees most days. Yeah, there's a part of me thinking, why have I got a sleeping bag and a, a thermal gilet tucked in this bag at the back here? Why don't I just get rid of them and save like two kilograms? But I decided I'd hang on to them and stick to my personal rules. Very impressive and very admirable that you'd, you'd keep with that lot. I must confess I would be tempted to think, oh, there's a homeless person. I'll do the good thing and just kick them out. <laughs> I like how your version's nicer than mine, though, because mine was post-it home. Your, your version's actually much more philanthropic. In your preparation and the run-up, was there anything special you did? Or The big change I made for this year was getting a coach. After the North Cape race last year, when I'd come first, I thought that was amazing, but... I'm not sure if that wasn't a fluke. What I want to do, I want to prove to myself that I can do this fairly well. And as part of that, I thought, whatever I do this year in 2019, I want to make sure I give it the best possible hit that my body is capable of doing. 
And I want it to come away from it without that lingering feeling of, oh, if I'd only done this, if I'd only done that. Part of that was I got a coach, Holly Sear, who was just incredible. Um, and she gave me all the structure to my training and we worked out race plans together and so on. And that made a, quite a substantial difference to my confidence and ability. And in that preparation, you've shared with me uh, one of your spreadsheets, which had your actual power output from the, the North Cape, and then recognising that you could you could do a, a good job on this. Do you want to just, just talk us through again, just kind of the stuff that you, you were tracking and what told you you could achieve this, this goal? Yeah, so at the end of the North Cape race, I pulled together this spreadsheet uh, of what I actually had accomplished each day, including the distance I travelled, how long I spent moving, uh, how long I spent sitting around on my backside not moving, which is probably the most important number, uh, and power measures and things like that. So just just for everybody who's not here, um, that particular column is called faffing, uh, <laughs> which I, I think bike faff is something that is normally the curse of many Sunday rides. Uh, and you can see here that actually when added up over how long, how long were you, let's call it faffing, as you described? Uh, well, I mean, I've not got the total there, but you can see that the average faff time per day was three hours, 20 minutes, it's which amazing. is just ridiculous. So, yeah, so you've got this data, everything from power to faffing. Mm -hmm. And uh, what did it tell you about what you could do for, for the, um, the record? Probably two key things came from looking at this. The first was that I was fairly happy with my average daily distance, 360 kilometers average daily distance. It's not amazing, but it gave me something to work from and, and feel that I was able to go further because you can always go a bit further. So I looked at that and I looked at what I needed to accomplish for the record. And I thought, well, if I, I was averaging 360 a day last year, albeit very variable, Maybe I can deal with that variability, make my days more consistent and increase the average and go for something like 400 kilometers a day and try and do a steady 400 kilometers every day. And so that would give me faster, more consistent travel and hopefully give me a good position for the record. And how did you break that 400 kilometers a day down? Was there any sort of further milestones you put in? Coincidentally, a few months before I set off, I read Mark Beaumont's book about cycling around the world and I kind of borrowed an idea from him. He rode in four hour blocks and would have a half hour break after each block. Now, obviously he had the luxury of a camper van and support crew. Uh, so I couldn't actually do four hours. I would do something like four hours until I found a petrol station or a shop or something like that, and then would have my break. So I had to be more flexible. Sometimes it would be three and a half hours. Sometimes it might be five hours, but I would kind of ride in those blocks of roughly a hundred kilometers and then take a proper little break, half an hour, enough time to stretch my muscles and eat something and then get back on the road. And I'd try and do four of those blocks per day. And that felt like the kind of distance that was manageable for a longer period. Because of course, what was going on with this ride this year was it was one and a half times further than I'd gone before. And I knew in previous rides, I'd kind of been on the, the ragged edge of what I could get away with from sleep deprivation. And so I knew that if I was going to go one and a half times further, I had to be a bit more forgiving with myself when it came to sleep and not try and push through quite so much. And so having that plan of I ride four hour blocks, I take short breaks, that leaves me six and a half hours in the evening. I can get a decent sleep in that time meant that I knew going into it that if I could stick to the plan and I didn't always stick to it, but if I could stick to the plan, things should work out okay. When you're doing a big target like this, you had the target of 21 days. You've done all your preparation, you've got the coach, you've worked out everything from power time to faff time, you've got your 100 kilometers four times a day, essentially. And then just before you're going to leave off, something happens. Yes, not that long before I started the ride, I learned that somebody else was having a go at the record. Now, I shouldn't be surprised because the record as it stood at 21 and a half days is pretty achievable. And it turned out another rider from Britain, Rob Gardner from Sirencester, had also spotted the record and decided he was going to have a go. He did it basically right before me. So in the last few weeks, as I was tapering for this attempt, I was having to go through the agony of watching him on a satellite tracker uh, trying to break the record. And sure enough, four days before I set off, he broke the existing record and got it down to 19 days something. So how did that feel? You know, you've done all your preparation, you've done all the commitment and all the sacrifice for it. 
What was your first thought when you saw he did it in 19 days? Do you know, my first thought was actually, good for you, Rob. I was really happy for him because I made my plan in such a way that it was okay. So there were a couple of ways you could go for a record. One is, as long as I beat it, that's all that matters. And if I'd gone into it with that mindset, I'd probably been aiming for 19 or 20 days. And so Rob's record would have been a massive problem for me. Uh, but I didn't. I went into it with, I'm going to beat the record and I'd quite like it to stay beaten. I went into it really trying to do the fastest I was possibly capable of doing. My plan all along, and in fact, you can see it from my yeah. spreadsheet here, had everything gone 100% to plan, I'd have done it in a little under 16 days. So when you saw 19, you were thinking, that's okay. Well done, Rob. Yeah. I can still beat you. Yeah. If things go to plan, you've got the record, you can enjoy it. And then I'm going to take it afterwards. So all the preparations done, this has happened with Rob. You start the adventure. So what would a typical day look like for you in your, in your adventure to achieve the record? The days started in very different places. Sometimes it would begin with me dragging myself out of a bed in a hotel after far too little sleep. Uh, sometimes it would begin waking up in a bus shelter or in a ditch or something like that, depending what I'd found the night before. I'd then cram as much food into my face as I could find. Uh, in my bags and just hit the road and I would generally as I started moving I'd look at the map and go okay there's a shop or a petrol station that's about the right distance away that'll be three or four hours I'll get there and I just start that process of knowing where my next big milestone was and just riding to it and not thinking about anything else. And keeping your mind straight into just complete the process, follow the process, keep the power, mm. keep the bike fat to a minimum, yeah. keep, keep the heart rate to, to a constant rate and just, just make it to that next milestone. Yeah, you're dead right. It's that classic thing that I think every athlete says that you've just got to focus on the inputs. You can't control the outputs. You can't actually control your speed, for example, but you can control your heart rate and your power and what you eat. And as long as you just trust your process, make sure that those things are okay, then the output will be whatever it is. So in the end, I ended up taking almost a day longer than I hoped. And that was because of really bad headwinds. I had 10 days of grinding into awful headwinds and that slowed me down. But I couldn't worry about that. It, it, there was no point worrying about the fact that my speed was less than I'd like because you can't control speed. But as long as I was focusing on does this feel okay? Does this feel sustainable? Am I eating? Am I putting down a sensible amount of power? Is my heart rate low enough? Then I knew that the output would be whatever it was, but it should be okay. And I have to say, having seen that short video you shared with me of the wind in Germany, that would have had me off my bike and just how on earth you kept through that wind for 10 days is must have been really uh, emotionally draining as well as psychologically trying to keep yourself focused on the goal. It really was. And Anyone who rides a bike, everybody listening to this will know that there is nothing worse than headwind. You, it's not like a hill where you get it back again, usually with more pleasure down the other side. Wind just, it just takes and doesn't give. It was really draining. It was really brutal. And obviously that starts to introduce other problems. Your natural instinct when you're grinding into a headwind for hours is, well, I've got to be aerodynamic. I've got to get down. So you, I'm on the aero bars and I'm crouched down and I'm you know, shrugging my shoulders and trying to get my head down and get every little advantage. But that starts to make your back hurt and that starts to make you sore on the saddle because you're crunching yourself into the saddle. So all these extra problems start to appear and you have to then worrying about a whole new bunch of things. And on the adventure, people like to know about the highs and the lows. Um, but talking with the lows first, was that bit in Germany the, the lowest point? You've said you're looking for your own limits. Mm. There'll be points where you you must have found it over this kind of distance. So were there any points where you really thought to yourself, oh, I'm in a bad place here? I never had a point in this attempt as bad as some of the ones I've had in the past. Easily, by a long way, my lowest points, almost the lowest points in my life, were during the transcontinental race a couple of years ago. It was partly the experience of going through those lows that made this ride more manageable because I knew what to anticipate and I, I was ahead of a lot of problems. There were definitely really low points with that wind and there the were problems with the hills as well. Probably nowhere was worse than Germany. I'm sorry Niels isn't here today because <laughs> I wanted to have a word with him about his country. <laughs> um, because 
it was pretty brutal. I went across the south of Germany, trying to avoid the mountains around the Czech Republic. And you're really going against the grain of the land. It's in and out of one river valley after the next, just over and over. And it's quite like Britain. It's quite like the Peak District or something like that, where they say, oh, it's only a 250 meter climb. We'll just go straight up it. So you're just grinding up these incredibly steep roads and then straight down the other side and then up and down and all of that into this monster headwind the whole way. And that got wearing. After like three days of that, your patience starts to wear a bit thin. So there were these lows and and there were other problems. I had a whole series of punctures across Poland. I think the Polish national sport is throwing bottles out of car windows and there's just broken glass everywhere. Obviously, your tyres pop a lot. And so I spent a lot of time and you just get one fix and you get half a mile down the road and another one goes. And, you know, that is hard work. These things always seem to come when you've run out of food. You know, <laughs> you're riding along thinking, oh, it's only 40 minutes to a shop. Bop! And you have to stop and deal with that. So there were lots of these loads. But one of the things is... I've done enough long distance stuff to realize that it always happens like this. There's always highs and lows and you come to accept it and you come to deal with it. And I think for me, a huge part of doing this kind of sport is learning that the lows are always followed by the highs and the highs are always followed by lows. And the worst thing you can do is fight it. You just got to go along with it and ride that roller coaster. Just be comfortable with the knowledge that the low points will always get better. If you just just keep moving, just keep doing anything useful, you'll always get there in the end. Now, you're professionally, you're obviously working in psychology, you work in forming, helping people form habits and positive habits and things. Is there anything you take in those moments, apart from the kind of the mindset, is there anything you do or trigger for yourself or take from your professional work to try and help you through it? Or do you just bash on through it? It's a good question. A bit of both. Largely, I bash on through, but... I think what you've touched on there, which is something I hadn't thought of before, is that that's part of the goal of training. So the way I would define a habit as a psychologist is a habit is a behavior that kicks in automatically based on your circumstances. So of course, the classic one that everybody recognizes is walking to the kitchen and opening the fridge to see what's in it. You've not gone through some process of thinking, I'm hungry, I'll see what's in the fridge. It's just seeing the fridge triggers this behavior of opening it. That's what training does for you. By training and practicing and doing this type of riding over and over, you're forming those habits of, well, when this happens, I need to do this. And a lot of these things start to become automatic. It's why the military train people. You know, the whole point of basic training in the army is so that when this thing happens, you don't think about it, you just do the right response. And that's what training in sport does as well. So through that, it means that particularly when you're tired Mm. and things aren't going well, it's then that the habit or training kicks in uh, and just gets you through it. So you can almost switch off, just let it happen and then sort of check in again once you found that lovely petrol station and chewing on a Swiss roll. I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there that yes, the reason the training is so important for this ultra distance stuff is because there will be those moments when you're so tired and exhausted, you're not thinking straight. And having spent all those hours training yourself to do the right thing in this situation frees you from having to deal with it at that stage. That's how you get that lovely Zen feeling of unconcern because you know that your training will mean that things work out okay and you can just free yourself off. But the place it really matters, you're dead right, is that time when you're just too tired. Now we touched briefly there on the idea that you're aiming for a petrol station to get some food. What did you eat? Because the, the countries you've crossed, it could be a fantastic buffet from the best of Europe, <laughs> from the north to the south, starting off with herring, I imagine, and finishing yeah. with some sort of tapas. I'm sure the petrol stations of Europe do not provide you with that kind of beautiful buffet. No, and one of the things I've realised is that you can ride fast or you can eat well, but you can't do both. So if you want good food, you're going to be stopping, you're going to be stopping in places that are not by the roadside. You're going to be stopping for long periods of time while people cook things or while you search around shops to find them. So if you want good food, you're going to have slow food. If you want fast food, you're basically in petrol stations or maybe supermarkets if you're lucky. And so you're eating whatever you can find. And basically that means you're eating junk. I spent 16, 17 days just eating absolute crap. 
uh, what my girlfriend calls brown food. Um, crisps, muffins, pastries, maybe a sandwich. It was a great day if you could find a tuna sandwich. Just all sorts of junk. Uh, whole Swiss rolls, a thousand calories in a Swiss roll that go down in about 30 seconds. It got to the point where my mouth was really sore. You know, my tongue was swollen up, my lips were cracked. I could barely put any more food in there because the sugar was just making my mouth swell up and hurt. Are there any particular countries where you could advise people not to stop in for their petrol stations? Definitely Russia. The petrol stations in Russia have the bare minimum of food. You're maybe lucky if you can find some of those little pretzel sticks or something like that, or maybe some crisps. Probably my lowest point in Russia for food was the day I crossed in and I'd gone through this awful 50 kilometer section of roadworks and they basically smashed the road down to the bedrock, stuck up some temporary traffic lights about five kilometers apart at a time and just left us to it. I was mixing on this shattered road and there's trucks everywhere and cars and everyone's really impatient and it had just been slow and dangerous and awful. And I finally got to this motel in an outside a town called Viborg. It was maybe 10 o'clock in the evening, half 10, something like that. And I was starving because there'd been no food this whole way. As I checked into hotel, there was a menu on the counter and I got really excited and I grabbed the menu and the receptionist just snatched it off me and said "Niet!" <laughs> and I sort of gestured and you like, did an eating gesture what what can I eat and in the end she sold me uh, a bar of chocolate and a bottle of beer and that was my dinner for the night and I just lay in bed with my stomach rumbling you know with this empty chocolate wrapper on the floor <laughs> Um, So that was quite a low point. So how long were you in Russia for? Only a couple of days in the end. Uh, I did the shortest route I possibly could, but there's no real way to avoid St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg traffic is exactly as insane as I thought it was going to be. It was... It was like nothing I've ever seen before. I just watched people smashing their cars into each other right in front of me. And well, I stopped at some traffic lights and I just heard this loud bang and there was a three-car pileup right next to me. It's, what the hell's going on here? Uh, it got to a point on the road out where it just got so dangerous. I ended up climbing over the barrier and pushing my bike for a mile or two under this huge motorway junction uh, before I felt safe enough to get back on the road. It was just absolutely nuts. You're not, from a professional perspective, kind of tempted to write to the Russian government and suggest some some really good traffic behaviours that they might want to adopt to safer for cyclists? I think there's a pretty straightforward <laughs> option if the Russian government wants to sort out their roads, which would be to stop people looking at their phones. Really? Everybody is on the phone all the time. I remember saying at the time, I don't know why Russian cars have windscreens, because nobody's looking out of them. <laughs> Your adventure, we've talked about the food, we've talked about what an average day looks like, we've talked about some of the lows. What were the real highs? There must have been some fantastic views, things you've seen, places you've experienced. Yeah, probably the place I'm looking back on most fondly was actually the interior of Spain. Um, Spain as a whole was fantastic. So crossing the Pyrenees was really nice. It was it was the hilliest part of the ride. But the views were incredible. The mountains there were just amazing. And then that interior of Spain is somewhere people don't see. But it's exactly what I pictured it would be. It's vast and empty and has this feeling of spaciousness and peace in there. One of the other reasons I was really pleased with Spain is my route planning went really well across Spain. So what I did was I looked for places where they built new motorways and left the main road behind. So I did most of Spain, maybe like 800 kilometers of Spain, on these almost empty main roads with glorious tarmac on the flattest route across the landscape because all the traffic was on this new motorway just to the side. And that was just a dream. That must have been absolutely fantastic. Mm. I've seen a couple of those sort of roads in France as Mm. well, where they just sit next to the new motorway. Yeah. And that must have been an absolute joy to ride on. And also it means, especially the Spanish ones, there were still quite a lot of facilities. There were still petrol stations and motels and cafes. I mean, quite a few had closed down, but there was still enough left that it meant that getting resources was easy. Brilliant. One of the questions, and I have to say, this does come from Niels. And he read just recently that uh, in the latest transcontinental race, that the biggest reason for people dropping out was because of saddle sores. I guess Nils's question really is, have you got buns of steel? <laughs> to do that distance and not stop, uh, I mean, do you soak your 
bum in vinegar and yeah. make sure it gets really hard? Or what, what is your approach to avoid the saddle sauce? I'm afraid I don't have a conqueror when asked. Um, no, there's, I mean, I've suffered really badly with saddle sores in the past. So when I did the transcontinental, it got to the point where I had quite badly broken skin and I had to take my cycling shorts off and strap them to the saddle and ride in a pair of running shorts instead just to stop the friction that was going on. Um, I've learned quite a bit since then. Uh, this year, well, there are two ways you can have trouble with your saddle. One is friction from rubbing on your clothes or the seams and that kind of thing. And the other is just the straightforward mechanical pressure of mm. sitting still on a relatively hard surface for a long time. This year, I completely dealt with the first one. I had some good chamois cream, uh, Velo Skin do really good chamois cream, and I had no problems at all with friction. And that was just such a relief. I did still have times when just the pressure of my sit bones on a saddle got quite sore and there's nothing that can really fix that. Occasionally I'd have to stand up on the pedals a bit and just take the pressure off, but I'm not quite sure what you'd do to fix that. But yeah, I got away with an awful lot. Brilliant. Well, Niels will be very pleased to, to have got his question in about your bum. <laughs> uh... Well, well, we'll arrange a photo for him later. <laughs> Well, don't worry, I'll put it up on his wall at home. We've talked about some of the lows and we've talked about some of the highs. Mm. You broke this record by about three days, wasn't it? Mm. There must have been a point when you knew you'd got it. When was that and how did that feel? We talked earlier about the process and how you stay focused on the process, not the goal. And as a result of that, it was a long time before I allowed myself to think I might have got it. I would say it was probably something like four or five hours from the finish. Really? It was the first time I allowed myself to think I was going to do it. Up until that point, if I ever felt my mind thinking that I was going to complete this, I would slam that down instantly. I, and I cannot think that anything could go wrong between here and there. I've got to just stay in the moment and keep doing the right thing. Maybe, yeah, that final point, four or five hours in the night before... I finally started allowing myself to think about it. But before that, I never even allowed myself to think of the end point. I never even allowed myself to think of Spain. If I was in Latvia, I, I wouldn't think beyond Latvia. And how did that feel, though, that moment when you finally allowed yourself to realise, I'm going to do this? It was a huge relief. I can get psychological about this. There's actually a, a thing in psychology called regulatory focus theory. Uh, and it basically says there's two types of person and this maps really well onto sport. So if you imagine a tennis match and the winner bashes home this, this winning shot, there's kind of two ways they can react. So on the one hand, they could be punching the air and going, yeah, look at me. Or the other could just be that they go, oh, it's over. I've not messed mm. this up. Yeah. And they're the two types of person that regulatory focus theory talks about. And I'm very much the latter. It's what they call prevention focus, the idea that victory is nothing going wrong. And that's how I felt. And so getting to the finish line was that feeling of, I've done it, nothing's gone wrong, it's over. I wasn't punching the air, I wasn't celebrating. That's very interesting. As well, talking earlier about your preparation, mm -hmm. it sounded like, you know, you achieved, um, you've achieved fantastic running in ultra endurance you then move over into cycling achieve fantastic cycling endurance and yet you get to the end of winning the north cape race and say to yourself was that a fluke and that over preparation to make sure that you you don't fail rather than looking at uh, how can i you know winning i know that there's, yeah. there's a combination of the two but you, you can really hear that so four hours from the end you finally allow yourself that relief how did that last four hours feel riding back it was tough. That last night was the only night that I went straight through without sleeping. It was always going to happen. I'd done 300 and something kilometres the previous evening. Normally, I would have pushed on for another 80 or 100 and had a sleep, but there was only 200 left, or 220 or something like that. Obviously, I was going to push through the night, but it was a long night. It was a long, slow, lonely night. My bike computer kept crashing, which didn't help. I started to have these weird feelings about the landscape. It, it wasn't quite the hallucinations that people talk about, but I just sort of became convinced I was on a very long, thin island 
going along to the end point of the island. And I think maybe it's because I was so focused on the end point, yeah, which is, after all, literally the last mm. point of Europe before yeah. you fall in the sea, that it felt like there was nothing outside my sides. It felt like if I went half a mile left or half a mile right, there was nothing there. I was just on this incredibly long strip of land heading to this point at the end. The night was just spent feeling really weird, like I was going down almost like a, a corridor of Spain towards this end goal. And when you get there, you have achieved the world record. I'm assuming there was a, an umpire band, there was a celebration, uh, probably some bloke with a Spanish guitar and a flamenco dancer, celebration. Was it that kind of, that kind of finish? Apart from the band and the Spanish guitar, which would be an interesting bit of fusion music that I think we're all waiting for. <laughs> no, what I had, I was very lucky that my girlfriend and her parents and my mother and stepfather, they all came out and met me at the finish. It was really nice. I don't think I appreciated how much I was going to like having them there. But to get to the end of that effort, especially after that long, hard final night, and to see friendly faces cheering me in, was just so uplifting. I was so pleased that they came. And I was so pleased I'd gone north to south because that meant that people were willing to come out and see you at the finish because it's a lot easier to get people to come to Spain than it is to the Arctic. Absolutely. The, the, yeah, I was going to say, during the British summer, yeah, yeah it's easy yeah. to get people to come to Spain. Yeah. You've achieved this. It must have been quite... Was it quite emotional as yeah. you finished? Yeah, I mean, I'm not afraid to say I was crying at the finish, yeah. you know. Uh, I've actually got a bit of video footage because obviously for the Guinness record, you have to video quite a lot of stuff. And I've got some footage shot up from my handlebars as I came down the last few streets and turned onto the causeway. And yeah, it's very emotional as, yeah. I, as I turn that last corner, see the end point at the end of this causeway and just realise I've done it and realise that the time is good. And yeah, I, I was very emotional. Okay, imagine. Once you've got it, I can imagine you've been on your own for so much of that time, focusing on the process. Yeah. You finally get there. You're sleep deprived. You've ridden through the night. Everyone wants to just say, hi, how are you? You know, and have normal conversation. Does it take a while to get your head into normal life, normal relationships, normal conversation after that amount of time? essentially on your own or focusing on one single task yeah it absolutely did I was not used to having conversations and I was not used to thinking about anything other than riding a bike I think that's one of the the beauties of doing these things is it is a magnificent thing that few people will ever experience to put your whole life on hold and just devote yourself to one thing for weeks it's an amazing thing to experience and, and it frees your mind incredibly. But the downside is it's very hard to split back out of it. And it certainly was a good two, three, four days before I really felt engaged again because I was so used to just staring at a computer. Once you've come back to the real world and all the rest of it, how did you, what was it? Did you have a, a big paella and then uh, did you spend a few days down in Spain relaxing? Yeah, we. so the finish point for the record is Tarifa, which is the southernmost point. Uh, very, very windy spot, very popular with windsurfers and headwind enthusiasts. <laughs> um, so we didn't actually stay there. We stayed in a little town just up the coast called Zahara de las Atunes, which is a tuna fishing town. Uh, so I spent a few days resting with my feet up, drinking beer and eating tuna. That sounds like a very nice way to finish your event. Mm. I know this is a probably a silly question. Do you get a cup or a certificate or a, a thing? I may, if Guinness is satisfied with my evidence, I may get a certificate. Otherwise, no, that's it. Uh, you basically have to do these things for yourself. I can't help but feel that there should be a cup involved at some point for you to hold aloft as, as you've achieved such a fantastic world record. Well, it would be nice, but uh, I don't think anyone's going to organise that. <laughs> We might have to get the Velocino uh, token cup that, that we can would put do. together. That would that, be better. Yeah, yeah. We should actually, perhaps we should introduce a series of them for people who achieve the, these sorts of yeah. world records. They, they should have one. Uh, yeah, sort of wrestle it off them to pass it to the Yes, person. yeah. Or outride them. Can you imagine poor old Rob Gardner? I can just imagine him stood there. We'd be there two days later. Sorry, Rob, we need that. <laughs> Um, Do you know, actually, he was a real gent about it. I, I got in touch with him just after I finished and said, I feel quite bad about this. And he was an absolute gent about the whole thing. When you're setting out for these things, mm. 
what was the worst piece of advice somebody's given you? Oh, there's a question. Worst piece of advice? The one that's coming to mind is the advice that often seems to get given to cyclists, which is eat before you get hungry and drink before you get thirsty, which I don't think is good advice. Really? I think better is to listen to your body. Uh, your body knows what it needs and it'll tell you. And I don't mean in any sense, let yourself get starving, hungry and gasping for water. But yeah, just listen to your body. And that reveals a bigger thing because that also goes for your pacing and your effort. Because one of the things we haven't mentioned is that in a real race setting, and especially these super long ones, all the measures go out the window. So after 10 days, your heart rate is no guide to anything. Your heart rate just goes to 100 in the morning and stays there all day and never right. changes. Um, your power just hits some level and never changes. Um, so you can't use those anymore to judge how hard you're going. The only thing you can use to judge how hard you're going in a, a real effort is how does it feel. So you've got to be really attuned to your body. And if there's one piece of advice that you would pass on to somebody who's going to do either this event or something similar, is there anything particular that you would pass on? I feel like I want to say the secret to tight clothing is turning it inside out when you take it off. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is something no one ever says. But... Um, practice. I think practice. Well, I'm about to constrict myself immediately because, um, you know, we've just seen Fiona Kohlberger win the transcontinental in her first major race although I think she has done a lot of long distance cycling before but practice is a big part of it I kind of went into this knowing what to expect the Easter weekend this year I did a real full dress rehearsal for this this ride I did three days of back to back to back 400 kilometers in 100 kilometer blocks uh, with exactly the same rest processes and rest evenings that I was planning for the record ride so when I started on the start line, I'd done it. I'd done this before. I knew what was going to go well and what was going to be a problem. I knew when I'd start to feel hungry, when I start to feel tired, because I'd been there and practiced. That's brilliant advice, I think, is obviously preparation form positive habits yeah. before you head out. Absolutely, because then nothing's a surprise when you've done that. Because the last thing you want is a surprise en route. I'm very meticulous about my route planning, for example. And I've spent a lot of time sitting at this kitchen table, pouring over routes and saying to myself, I do not want to do any thinking on the road. I want to do all my thinking here so that when I hit the road, there's no requirements at all. And it's about preparation. Well, we get to meet quite a few athletes of different types, either whether it's cyclocross or endurance racing. We, to a certain degree, have an understanding of what your mindset is and what drives you. But is there something that outside of this, that when people are looking at you, you feel like they misunderstand about you when you're uh, going for these things? Maybe it's either cyclists or if it's just people who aren't anything to do with it. Yeah, I think people look at what I do and what riders like me do and see it as something they could never accomplish. And it's just so not true. Everyone can do more than they think. And, and that works on two levels. In terms of like your longest ride, you can always go a bit further. If the longest ride you've ever done is 40 miles, you can do 45. And when you've done 45, you can do 50. And when you've done 50, you look back on 40 and go, oh, actually that wasn't so far. And that's all I've done. You know, I started out riding short distances. One day I thought, I'm gonna try and do 200K. And that seemed incredibly difficult. But once I'd done it, I looked back on 100K and went, oh, that was easy. And once I'd done 300K, I looked back on 200 and went, that was easy. So you can always push yourself and by pushing yourself, shift your horizons. But then this ability to always do a bit more is also in the moment. You know, we talked earlier about the highs and the lows and you do get some absolutely low points doing these things. And sometimes it gets so bad, all you can do is say, I just need to reach that tree. And then when you get to the tree, you say, I just need to reach that gate. And sometimes you have to strip it right back to those bare essentials to keep going. And I've genuinely done this. Um, but you can always do that a little bit more. I think a lot of people who listen to this have got their own goals. Maybe it's 100 miles, local sportive, yeah. and the idea that you can incrementally improve on that yeah. to, to get yourself further, longer, yeah. faster, yeah. however you want to do it, yeah. uh, is quite inspirational. Yeah. You can always do 1% more. So you completed this world record. You set yourself a task and you've gone out and you've, you've achieved it. Was, uh, did you achieve all your goals or did you have any other goals you wanted to achieve during the ride? I did have one other 
little secret goal that I didn't tell anybody about before I set off, and I've actually only ever told my girlfriend so far, which was I wanted to go faster unsupported than the supported world record. So the world record the other way, the east to west, is held by Lee Timmis, and he averaged 370 kilometres a day with a support crew. And I thought to myself, and I didn't dare tell anybody this, but I thought, wouldn't it be quite badass to go faster than 370 kilometres a day without the support crew? And how many did you manage? 377. Brilliant. So I was so pleased when I did the maths and realised that I just pipped over that. That really does put into perspective the the achievement uh, for yourself. Because if you were to consider the benefits of all those of a support crew and for you to achieve a faster time... Yeah. That is incredible, man. I, I was really pleased with that. That's For me, that's probably the, the best thing about the whole event has been setting myself that little secret stretch goal and also hitting that. And what about for the future? Have you got any more goals that you've got set up? Uh, are you looking at any other races? I, I've, every race I've done or every ride I've done, I've come away at the finish and thought, okay, I could have done that faster. So... I've been quite good about feeding forward what I learn from one event to the next. You know, my North Cape ride was much better than Transcontinental because I'd learnt a lot. This record ride was much better than North Cape because I'd learnt a lot. I've learnt more. So it feels like I've still got more to give. It feels like I could still improve. There's a few options out there and it's still very early to make plans for next year. Um, there is a part of me is tempted by the Transamerica just because it's Partly that thought of crossing America coast to coast is a mm. classic journey. So just the, the, the scale and the location of it feels very, very tempting. But also it's a very similar distance to what I've just done. So I'd have a really good benchmark for knowing what my body can do over that kind of distance. But nothing's definite yet. You, uh, our connection is that you went to university with my wife and... She talks very highly of you, but from a sporting perspective, and I said to her, what was he like at sport at university? I was expecting her to say, because you played hockey, I was expecting her to say he was captain of the hockey team, um, or he was missing games because he was um, competing on some sort of endurance athlete. So, but from what I was surprised to hear, actually that wasn't you at university. And I guess my question is, with all you've learned and all you've achieved, do you ever feel you wish you'd started this endurance career earlier? A hundred percent. I mean, I should correct that slightly. I wasn't in the hockey team. I went drinking with the hockey team. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had this actually amazing deal where I lived with a bunch of hockey players uh, and they'd be off all day on Saturday. I'd get loads of work done and then just go and get really drunk with them in the evening. Um, so that was a... Yeah, but I didn't know sport at university. I so think, can I just check, did this help you prepare with sleeping in bus shelters, eating absolutely. Swiss rolls? Yeah, at least you've got some training. Yeah, it? sleeping on roundabouts and yeah, things like yeah. that. Um, <laughs> or I should, I should offer up for the vultures, as we were known. Uh, they were very good at making me learn how to cope with suffering because living with them was very good practice <laughs> for putting up with some nonsense over very long periods of time. Um, yes, yeah, so I was doing nothing back there. And you're absolutely right. I've often had that same thought of, well, I only started doing sports almost on the verge of my 40th birthday. What could I have done if I discovered this 20 years earlier? Um, but I think I can't allow myself to see it as a regret. Yeah. All I can really think is where I am right now feels great. I'm really fit. I feel good off it. Uh, I'm accomplishing things I never believed I would accomplish. Um, so for myself, I just have to focus on the moment. And I think for other people who might look at me, it's never too late. You know, the fact that I didn't do this in my 20s and 30s, doesn't matter, I've just broken a world record. It doesn't, it's not too late to get into these things later. And why is it that you think you're achieving these world records and other people aren't? Is there an element of the, is it your mindset? Is, is there an element of 
physical? Is it genetics? Is is there what is that combination? Do you believe that is making getting you to 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 achieve a world record? There's no question that I've got some physical gifts. Um, you know, for the sports geeks out there, I have a reasonably high VO2 max, uh, which is obviously something I was partly born with. Um, so yeah, I started out with some slight advantage. I mean, it's definitely not professional level, don't get me wrong, um, but I have some slight advantage there. But the vast bulk of this is in the head. It's wanting it. I mean, above all, it's wanting it. If you don't want it and you don't really want it, you'll never get this sort of thing. Because if you really want it, you you get out there and you ride through winter, come rain or shine. If you really want it, you find the time to do, or you find the energy to do extra efforts in training. You find the time to do the preparation. You find the time to do dress rehearsals. You find the energy and the inclination to make yourself do the, the nine months of build-up. Because that's what matters. It's not the two weeks of actually doing the effort. It's the nine months of build-up and preparation and training that matter. And that's where really, really wanting it comes in. And if you want something enough, you'll make yourself do it. Excellent. Ian, you weren't just doing the world record just for yourself. You're also using it to raise a profile and earn some money for a charity. Which charity was it? I was supporting a charity called Road Peace, uh, who are this incredible group of people who are focused on traffic injuries and death. Um, obviously trying to prevent it rather than support it. So they do a couple of really important things. The first is that they do very powerful lobbying work to try and make our roads safer. And they do it in a sensible way by trying to stop collisions happening in the first place rather than fretting about minor things. Uh, and then the other thing they do is they work with the families of people who've been bereaved with road violence. Um, so their work is incredibly helpful and I was very pleased to support them and help raise a bit of money. And if people want to learn a bit more about that charity, uh, where, where do they go? Uh, their website is roadpeace.org. And I definitely recommend having a look and giving them some support. Thank you. Dr. Ian Walker, it's been absolutely brilliant to speak to you today. So just a really big thank you from Velocino. Hopefully we'll be hearing more of your exploits in the future. Thank you so much. Well, now I'm really gutted that I wasn't with you because he sounds really, really interesting. He was, and he was a really lovely bloke as well. It was yeah. fascinating to learn. And I think if anyone's got any more questions, I'm sure Ian wouldn't have any problem. You can contact him through his website, which is drianwalker.com. And yeah, you can read more about either his activities as an elite runner, uh, as well as an endurance cyclist as well. Did you manage to go riding with him on the day? That was originally the plan, was to, to go out for a ride with him, but I just didn't have time, unfortunately. And then when we got there and I realised quite how fast he could ride over such distances, I wasn't completely disappointed I didn't have time. But no, it would have been lovely if I'd gone out for a ride with him and head up the Cheddar Gorge, which was the original plan. Hey, Mike, let's just go for a 500 kilometre ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, though, you know, you, you take from what he said in the interview and the idea that all of us, no matter what we do in terms of our distances, you can go that little bit further. So, you know, if you can ride 100 kilometers, you can ride 110 because it's only a small amount extra. And it was really inspirational talking to him about how you can just very steadily build that up and find yourself doing 200k and looking back at 100k and thinking, do you know what? Actually, that, that was pretty easy. So yes, uh, although I'm joking about not being able to go out for a ride with him, it was really inspirational talking to him and makes you think, yeah, I could do this. I could do 300, I could do 400K, no problem at all. What struck me was definitely the bit about sleeping. It's basically, you just sleep where you are, right? And you, you won't ever have a like proper sleep. I thought that was really, really interesting because I'm a person, I appreciate my sleep. I, I like to sleep in long, but there you don't have the time because you have a time limit. The other thing that I thought was really interesting yeah. is how he dealt with the situation when he found out that somebody else broke the record just a few days ahead of him. Mm. I would have struggled as a person to still go out and do it, but he seemed to have coped very well. Yeah, he had a really interesting mix of that self-drive to control his own process and what he can control. So uh, he knew what he needed to do to achieve beat that, that new record that had been set. But you could also just talking to him, he got a real sense of competition. He didn't want to go out and come second. He wanted to win. That's and it. so, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting chat with him. 
That's so cool because in another podcast somewhere I heard from another person who said something similar, um, something in the line of like life is about 10% of what life throws at you and 90% of how you deal with this situation, which yeah. I thought was really remarkable and very interesting. I also found two interesting things linked to our previous interviews. Ian was really clear that you've got to want it. And if you want it enough, you can do it. And that's very much what Kieran mentioned when he was talking about looking at cyclocross. If you want to, to, to win, if you want to do best, you, you've got to want to do it and you've got to get out there. Absolutely. And also talking with Ben, when we looked at, uh, he's following the route of the, the Tour de France for 2019. He talks a lot about preparation, sort of scenario planning and making sure that by the time he got to the event, Everything was almost on an automatic pilot. Everything was drilled in. And again, it was very much about what Ian talked about. And he described it as forming really positive habits. Uh, so, yeah, something I think we could all learn. And really interesting that his motivation is still the same as some of our other interviewees. Yeah, definitely. Like as uh, my wife usually used to say, is if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. And it seems as if there's like a pattern. If you really want to achieve greatness in cycling or in sport or maybe even in life, mm -hmm. then you have to prepare that you can just remove certain uncertainties. Absolutely. So I can. it's quite easy to sit here talking about these great endurance events as I sip my beer. Well, I had my great ride yesterday. It was uh, six kilometers and then I split my tire. <laughs> so Nils, uh, what did you do to uh, recover this ride? Did you did you shoulder the bike and uh, walk home yourself? Did you fix the tire by the, world, by the road in some ingenious way? Well, my pregnant wife was kind enough to come with a car. I took the car, drove home and she ran home, but she wanted to run home. <laughs> wife comes out with the car and then she's the one that ends up running home actually i didn't drive home i drove to the pub you drove to the pub <laughs> and she runs home. Uh, for those of you at home uh, this is this is hardly some form of uh, torture for hannah she is actually a triathlete so this is very much up, would have been what she wanted to do <laughs> exactly you know, again, seven months pregnant and still faster than me in running i know she is quick yeah she is quick Well, that's it for episode five of Velocino Podcast. Niels, if people want to get in touch with the show, give them the list of how they do it. Ah, oh, it's easy. Just send us an email to podcast at velocino.com or directly to Niels or Mike at velocino.com or just like tweet on Twitter to Velocino PDCST, Instagram, just Velocino obviously with a double C. Is there anything we need people to do? You mentioned something about getting some reviews in for us. Oh yeah, that would be great. If you could give us an, uh, a review on Apple, on iTunes, that would be much appreciated. Also just hit the subscribe button. Yeah, that's great. it. That's it for episode five of the Velocino podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes where we'll have more interviews and include more stories. Remember, the best rides have not yet been ridden. Stories. Stories. Okay, that was good. That was good, that's all right. Well, yeah. uh, I guess you just hang up now, do you? You hang up. No, no, you hang up. 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 Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. <laughs>